we have looked at the birth of Jesus, uh, from which we discover that Jesus is God's authorized king of Israel. He's God's authorized king of Israel. And this had brought him into conflict with uh, King Herod, the political leader of his day, who was the appointed king of Israel by the Roman government. So we saw that conflict take place. And then last week we saw uh, John the Baptist preparing the nation for the arrival of the kingdom of God. And this brought him into conflict with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So our two major events so far, and our two major people, Jesus, birth brings him into conflict with Herod, John's baptizing the people, calling them to repent, brings him in conflict, political conflict with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, in verse 13, we come to the baptism of Jesus. Now, look what it says. Because John is not only preparing the nation for the arrival of the kingdom, he's preparing Jesus for the arrival of the kingdom. And so, in verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, notice, uh, Jesus comes down from Galilee. He moves into the province of Judea, where John is outside the city uh, baptizing people. That means Jesus comes 60 to 70 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist. This means that news of John the Baptist uh, has spread far and wide. I mean, for news to spread 60 or 80 miles was an amazing thing in those days because it was all done by word of mouth. And evidently, word is out that God has raised up a prophet. And this has excited the people in the region, the Jewish people in the region. Because God hadn't spoken for 400 years. His last prophet was Malachi. Now, there were a lot of people who called themselves prophets, but they weren't authorized by God. God's last authorized prophet was Malachi. And God, in a sense, had been silent for 400 years. That's why we say between Malachi and Matthew, we call that the 400 silent years. So word is out that God is speaking again, and he's raised up a prophet, and the nation is flocking out to John. They say, what is your message? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to prepare for it by repenting and being baptized. And Jesus himself comes down, maybe as part of the nation, uh, to heed John's uh, message. Now look at John's reaction in verse 14. John tried to prevent him. Preventing from what? Being baptized. Saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you are coming to me? So John realizes that Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Now there's a couple things I want to mention. This is, in Matthew's Gospel, and I think maybe in all the Gospels, this is the only time that Jesus has direct uh, uh, confrontation or a direct relationship with John the Baptist. Only time that he meets John the Baptist face to face. Okay? Now this is very interesting because we know from Luke's Gospel that John the Baptist is actually Jesus' second cousin. Okay. Remember Mary goes to Elizabeth when she's pregnant? Well, Elizabeth is John's mother. 
So these are this is a family affair going on here. You know, we see a lot of evangelists and uh, pastors and uh, presidents of Christian schools. And guess what they do? They pass the mantle on to their kids. They pass the mantle on to their relatives. Billy Graham to Franklin Graham. Oral Roberts to his... It doesn't matter who it is. That's how people operate. We don't think of uh, God's kingdom being a family affair, though, do we? But in some sense it is. And I, I imagine that when Joseph and Mary uh, went on a vacation to uh, visit the cousins, uh, Jesus and John the Baptist probably played together as children. But as far as we know, as adults, this is the only direct contact that they ever had. And John reckon he knows it. When he sees Jesus coming, he doesn't say, who is that guy? He says, oh, it's my cousin. Now, I have cousins, and I think I'm better than my cousins. <laughs> John realizes, he says, I have need that uh, you baptize me, you shouldn't be baptized. Now, we have to remember that uh, John's baptism is connected with repentance. So John doesn't feel that Jesus needs to repent. Repent of what? Well, sins, but don't think of sins in a personal sense. Like, well, he lied, he stole something. It's, it's not that kind. He's calling the nation to repentance. He's calling people to repent. And what he's saying is, you need to break with your allegiances. Uh, you need to be faithful to God. And in the past, you haven't been faithful to God. You've done whatever it takes to get by in the Roman culture under the emperor. And you need to stop living by the principles of this world. You need to break with that, make it about face, and give your allegiance to God. And Jesus has always given his allegiance to God. He's always been faithful. Uh, we saw him in, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, at the age of 12, when he's now a son of the law, maybe he had a bar mitzvah, and guess what he's doing? He's teaching the elders in the synagogue about uh, his relationship with God. So John realizes that Jesus has always been faithful. He's never been an anti-God person. He's never lived according to worldly principles. And so he says, he tries to prevent him. Now when he says, I need to be baptized by you, what he's doing, he's recognizing Jesus' moral superiority. He realizes, hey, in comparison to Jesus, I should be the one who's, who needs to be baptized. Now, I do think that John the Baptist himself has been a faithful person. He's a part of that remnant of Jews that have uh, been looking for the kingdom, Messiah, and has been faithful to God. They haven't compromised. We have no, never have a word that John the Baptist was baptized himself. Do we? He baptized others, but do we have any word that he got baptized? So it may be that John sees the need for baptism and repentance is amongst those who have not been faithful to God, not been a faithful remnant, but have compromised. We just don't know. These are just questions I'm bringing up. I want you to look at a text and just see how you can think through it. Now back in verse 11, remember he said there's going to come one whose sandals he wasn't worthy to carry? Well, now he recognizes that Jesus is that one. Now, he's known Jesus all his life, but maybe he never really recognized that until he sees Jesus coming. And there's something there that just tells him that Jesus, maybe knows that Jesus is faithful. Anyway, so look at Jesus' response. Verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it 
to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Now, I want you to notice two words. First word is now. Permit it so now. John says, try to prevent him. Jesus says, permit it. John tried to prevent him. In verse 14, Jesus said, permit it. Permit it when? Now. This shows you that there's a time element involved. There is need for this act right now. So permit it right now. Even though you don't think I need to be baptized, allow it to happen right now. Why? For, look in verse 15, because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This brings us to the second word, the word fulfill. Notice that something must be fulfilled. Now we've seen that word fulfill at least six other times in Matthew's Gospel so far. And I've showed you this once before, but I want to remind you, if you look back at 21-22, chapter 1 and verse 22, uh, when it talked about Mary being pregnant, it says, And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, there's that word fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 15. 2.15. This is where Jesus and Mary and Joseph escaped to Egypt. 2.15. And there, they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Down in verse 17. Then it was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 23. And they came to dwell in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. You seeing a pattern here? Each of these fulfillments is a fulfillment of something that was said by a prophet in the Old Testament, and thus they are fulfilling God's plan, God's predetermined plan that He revealed in the Old Testament through prophets. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 3. For this was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. See, John's coming preaching to the Jews is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And now in verse 15, and Jesus said, Permit it now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. God has this big plan, and this plan is to bring in the kingdom of God, and we need to do this because this is part of God's predetermined plan. Most likely uh, based on Old Testament prophecies. So this act of Jesus being baptized at this exact moment is part of God's predetermined plan that is fulfilling something. Now what's it, what is it fulfilling in a sense? What's happening here? Well one thing is a transition is taking place. Uh, the law and the prophets are falling by the wayside. In Jesus the law and the prophets are being fulfilled and we're in a transition and God is bringing in his kingdom. This is what this baptism of Jesus marks. It marks sort of a transition or a fulfillment. This is going to climax John's ministry. The baptism of Jesus is the climax of his ministry, the high point of his ministry. From this point on, John's ministry is going to decline. The baptism of Jesus is the beginning of his ministry. From this point on, 
His ministry is going to be launched and it's going to rise. He's going to be the rising star, replacing John the Baptist, gain momentum. And so we see this. Now, Jesus says, Permit this now, for thus it is fitting for us. Notice that plural pronoun. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Both of them have a role in this act. Jesus' role is to be baptized for some reason. We don't know yet. We haven't revealed that yet. And second of all, John's role is to baptize him. So, what happens? Uh, in the verse 15, then he allowed him. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because in verse 14, he tried to stop him. But Jesus convinces him that this is part of God's plan. So then he allows Jesus to be baptized. And he recognizes this is the right thing to do. Without John's part, Jesus' ministry can't commence. Jesus needs John for his ministry to commence. And John needs Jesus for his ministry to come to a climax, to reach its high point. Now, I've spent a lot of time dealing with the baptism of Jesus over the years. A number of years ago, I wrote a fairly significant paper on why was Jesus baptized. And there are a lot of theories out there. And I don't want to go into all of them, but I'm going to mention a few of them. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Theory number one is because he was a sinner. Now that's a legitimate, I mean, not a legitimate theory, but it's a real theory. And there were people in the early church, the Ebonites, which was a sect within Christianity, to believe that Jesus, up until this point, was a sinner just like everybody else, and he came to be baptized and have his sins washed away, at which time God uh, chose him to be the Messiah. That's a theory. It's based on speculation. We have no basis for that theory. Uh, he was without sin. The Scripture is very clear about that. The Catholic Church believes that Jesus was baptized in order to sanctify the water, baptismal waters. So why are we baptized today? Because Jesus turned baptism into a sacrament. By Him going into the waters, He sanctified the baptismal waters. And that's why they believe it's essential for salvation. I would reject that. Uh, some people say Jesus was baptized to put His stamp of approval on John the Baptist's ministry. And it's true that Jesus is baptized, and when He is, he puts his stamp on Jesus on John's ministry. But that's not why he was baptized. That was true. But that's not why he's baptized. Others believe that he was just identifying with the nation. John's calling the nation to repent and be baptized. John sees, Jesus sees himself as part of the nation. Uh, scripture says he was numbered with the transgressors, although himself he himself was not a transgressor. That's speculation. We don't, do you see that from the text? No, not from the text. That's speculation. Another one is that his baptism foreshadows Christian baptism. Is that true? Yes. But is that why he was baptized? No. You don't see that in the text, do you? Another theory is, uh, in a sense, he's being obedient to the law. Jews were being baptized. John's calling them to be baptized. He's baptized. Jews practice Passover? Jesus practiced Passover. Jews practice the Day of Atonement? 
Jesus practiced the Day of Atonement. Did he need to be atoned? Does his sin need to be atoned? No, but he did it. Why? Because his nation did it. So, is that why he was baptized? Well, the text doesn't say that, does it? Some people say, well, it's just a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection, which is to come. Is it? Yes. But is that why he was baptized? No. So why does the text say he was baptized? See, what we're hunting for always is the text. Okay? The text says he was baptized, why? To fulfill this plan for righteousness that God had established and revealed in the Old Testament. So the key is remembering this, that John's ministry, the purpose for John coming and baptizing is to prepare the nation for the arrival of the kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to be prepared for that. And his second purpose is to prepare Jesus for the kingdom. Okay, So just remember that. That's what John's ministry is. It's a ministry of preparation. He's a forerunner. Now look at verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens... <coughs> were opened to him. The heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting on him. So, now you see something. He's baptized. He comes up out of the water. And when he comes out of the water, look what it says. Look! Look! Behold! What's happening? Oh, the heavens are open. The heavens are open to who? The heavens were open to him. That's Jesus. Jesus. Now, what does that mean? The heavens were open to Jesus. That phrase is repeated in the Bible and other places. And it always refers to a supernatural event where God makes himself known. Now, let me just read I'm not going to turn you there, but I'm going to read this, okay? And this is from Ezekiel, and here's what it says. This how Ezekiel opens. It says that, came to pass in the thirteenth year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, that I was among the captives, Ezekiel says, by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened. Phrase, same phrase. He was sitting there, meditating, thinking about God, Suddenly the heavens were opened. Now watch this next phrase. And I saw visions of God. And then it says, And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. So here we see that the heavens were opened. Now in the New Testament it says the same thing. In the book of Revelation. Now listen to this. You can write down the verse. It's 4.1 and here's what it says. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Heaven is open. And a voice spoke. I hear a voice saying to me, come up here and I'll show you things that must come. And John has a vision. Okay, So, when you see this phrase, heaven open, it signifies that Something supernatural is happening. Eternity, where God lives, is breaking into time. 
There's a veil between eternity and time. And that veil is pulled back and eternity breaks into time. And Jesus, it says, it was open to Him, just like heaven was open to Ezekiel. The person walking down the road in Ezekiel's day didn't see heaven open. It was open to Ezekiel. On the Isle of Patmos, the heaven was open to John. He's the one that had the contact with God. God breaks in and makes contact with John the Revelator. And now heaven is open to Jesus. So this signifies that a supernatural event is occurring as Jesus comes out of the water. Does that make sense? Now look at what happens. It says this in verse 16. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So when heaven is open, what happens? God's Spirit, God's presence, descends upon Jesus, and it's described metaphorically as a dove. Not literally a dove. Like a dove. See? God's presence comes down like a dove. And it says, he saw it. You see that in verse 16? He saw the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. No one else saw it. Heaven was open to Jesus. He saw it. He saw God's Spirit coming down upon him. So what? the fact that he saw it means he's having a vision. All the people standing around there didn't see it. Jesus saw it. He's having a vision. He's having an altered state of consciousness. People who are in their right minds and their conscious can't see this, but Jesus' consciousness has been altered. So this means that when Jesus is baptized, uh, he's experiencing something otherworldly that other people aren't experiencing, something that's supernatural. Now, what does this dove represent? Holy Spirit coming like a dove. Well, people that represents peace, all these kinds of things. You need to really think through these matters. Those kinds of answers are usually trite. Those are kinds of answers that you find in commentaries that are devotional commentaries. What's this describing? The first time the Bible mentions the Spirit. It says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered, sounds like a dove, doesn't it? Hovered over the waters. Here's the Spirit again hovering over the waters. And what's happening in that first section? God is creating a world. And guess what He's doing now? He's bringing about a new creation. He has a new man, a new humanity that He's creating. The first Adam messed things up. Christ is the second Adam. He's going to create a new humanity, a new human race. He's finished with the old human race. The world as we know it is going down to twos. But he is developing a new creation. In fact, the next time you see the dove is when God destroys the world. <laughs> and Noah's on the boat and there's a bunch of water again. And there goes the dove hovering over the water. And guess what? The old world's destroyed and what's God doing? Creating a new world. Here he is again, hovering, and guess what? He's creating a new, a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old 
passing away, all things are being made new. So Jesus is our is the first new man. He's the last Adam. He's the first of this new creation. And he is the fountainhead of God's new humanity. And that's what the readers would think when they saw the Spirit of God hovering like a dove, descending like a dove upon him. But that's not all that happens. I think that that's important because that's a sign to Jesus that God's with him. Heaven's open, God descends on Jesus like a dove. Jesus sees it happening. It's a sign to Jesus that God's with him, that God has chosen him for a special mission. That would not have happened had John the Baptist not baptized him. Now a second thing happens. Look at verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now this voice evidently can be heard by others because it's speaking of my Son not in the first person or second person. He doesn't say, You're my Son. He's not speaking to Jesus. He's speaking to other people, isn't it? He's saying, This is my Son. They hear the voice. John the Baptist hears the voice. Probably those around hear the voice. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the people hear. So this is a sign to the people. There's a sign to Jesus that God's with him and he is God's chosen one. That sign is that he sees the dove come upon him, the Spirit. And there's a sign to the people that Jesus is God's chosen one, that he's beginning a new creation, starting his own kingdom, and that is a voice that comes to the people. Where does that voice come from? How is it heard? It heard out, does it come out of the blue? Does the voice come out of nowhere? Is there suddenly just a sound and everyone looks, looks says, I hear something. What is it? And then the voice says, This is my beloved son. You said, Or does God speak through John the Baptist, the prophet? Does John sort of have an experience and God and he says, Thus says the Lord, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We don't know. We just don't know. But you need to think about this. Now look at the message itself. Message, part one of the message is this is my beloved son. That is a quote. From Psalm 2 7. Now, there I want you to turn over to Psalm 2 7. So, we said that the word fulfilled always is linked to an Old Testament passage. Now we're seeing what they are fulfilling. These two guys, John and Jesus, are fulfilling, first of all, Psalm 2 7. Now, that's a very interesting psalm when you get there because it's a psalm that refers most likely to King David in its historical context. We've been through the Psalms. We covered the Psalm once before. And so, I'll just read a little bit. And here's what it says in verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That's the nations around Israel. They gathered together in an alliance against the Lord and against His anointed the anointed was the king. 
So they're against God and they're against his king, which would be King David. God says, let us break their bonds into pieces, cast away their cords. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. Can you imagine anybody trying to fight God? The Lord will hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. Yet I, God says, have set my king, that would be King David, on my holy hill in Zion. I declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. So here you see this phrase, you are my son. So, this is a, a, a royal psalm. This is what's called an enthronement psalm. And it describes David being recognized by God as his anointed one, as his authorized king over Israel. And David has been installed this is an installation psalm. David is being installed as the king, and God is pointing to David that David is his son. Because here's what the Old Testament believed. Old Testament believers believe that when God put anointed a king over Israel, the king of Judah over Israel, that that king became God's earthly representative. He represented God's rule to the world. And God adopted him or declared the king to be his son, his earthly representative. So, every king of Israel was called the son of God. God's earthly representative. In Matthew's Gospel, God applies the title now to Jesus his final king. His, what we'll call his end time king. His eschatological king. And since it's spoken in the third person, saying, this is my beloved son, it's a sign to the people that Jesus is God's authorized king. Now, when you look in Psalm 2-7, God says, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. I made you my son. When I installed you as the king, I made you my son. In the sense of my earthly representative. The today for Jesus is his baptism. That's when God publicly declares Jesus his son. Has he always been his son? Well, yes. But now he's declaring it publicly so the people hear it. So everyone understands So, in a sense, both John the Baptist and Jesus are fulfilling their Roles in the completion of Jesus being made the end time son. Now the second part of uh, Matthew 3 verse 17 is this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am delighted. That is a quote from Isaiah 42 verse 1. So I want you to turn there. It's interesting that God in his public proclamation at the baptism of Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages. He quotes himself. In a sense. And people would have recognized, Jewish people who understood Scripture, would have recognized that voice from heaven and that message being a combination of Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Now look what it says in Isaiah 42-1. 
This is a passage known as the suffering servant passage. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights. This is the, the Hebrew equivalent of uh, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, in whom my soul delights. There's the quote, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to whom? The nations, the Gentiles. You see that? So now we see that God's delighted, but here he's not called his son. He is called his servant. Servant. And so the Messiah is going to be a king, and he's going to be a servant which in the Jewish mind was a contradiction in terms. Kings were not servants, they were served. Kings uh, were strong. Uh, they were proud. They didn't humble themselves. And so here we see there's a combination that the Messiah is not only going to be a king, he's not only going to be uh, God's authorized ruler, but his rule is going to be through servanthood. And somehow this has to do with Gentiles. Which for Matthew's audience is important if you've been with us over the weeks because they're rubbing shoulders with Gentiles. So, from uh, and here it says he puts his spirit on him. Which is exactly what happens at Jesus' baptism. So these two Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled in an end-time way, what we call an eschatological way, in the person of Jesus, by both John and Jesus doing their dual roles. And so, thus, the scripture is being fulfilled. So as a result of this, what we say is that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah, declared so at baptism to Jesus, through the sign of a dove that he himself sees, and to the masses through the voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well placed. So right there you have the Trinity. You have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the voice from heaven, you have God the Father. All there taking place in conjunction with each other uh, in the baptism. Jesus Christ. The Jews did not understand the servant concept. They thought the Messiah was going to be a warrior who would overthrow Rome. That's why they rejected Jesus. That wasn't how he was going to do it. Instead, you know what he was going to do? He was going to serve. <laughs> he was going to be God's king through service. A servant king. Something the Jewish people could just not grasp whatsoever. And his ultimate service, believe it or not, was to die for the people. He said, I, in Mark 10, 45, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and die for many people. What's the greatest sign that you're a servant is that you'd be willing to die for someone. Jesus says at the Last Supper, he says, don't, don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over people. He said, be servants. I've come to serve. And he said, let me show you how far I'm willing to serve. And he bent down, and he washed the disciples' feet. That was the work of a slave. You 
couldn't do. Can you can you get any low? Can you do anything lower on a person's body than than their feet? Can't get any lower. So Jesus is a humble king, and uh, maybe that's why it's a dove. Maybe the dove does represent not a warrior king, but a servant king. We're just not certain on that. But we know that Herod was a warrior king. He controlled things by force. We know that the emperor controlled things by force. God's king is going to be a different kind of king. This is the kind of world that he's going to produce through the Messiah. And so, the bottom line is the baptism of Jesus. Why is Jesus baptized? He's baptized to initiate his and declare him to be God's Messiah King. He was God's authorized King at birth, but he wasn't enthroned yet. At birth, he was God's authorized King through his birth. He was the baby King, not on the throne. And he's baptized, in his baptism, he becomes God's authorized king as an adult. He's still not enthroned, but he's been declared God's king. Remember David? Samuel goes and says, God tells Samuel, he says, the people want a king and all this. God tells Samuel, he says, go and uh, go to the household of Jesse. I want you to anoint one of his sons to be the future king. He goes and all the sons have prayed before him, and Samuel knows, God, this one, this one, no, 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 no. Don't you have any other kids? Come on, i got a little run out in the field somewhere. Take care of the sheep. Bring him in. God says, that's the one day he anoints him. Anoints him as king as a child. But he's certainly not sitting on the throne yet, is he? He works for King Saul. God's unauthorized king. And here he is, God's anointed king, working for an illegitimate king, in a sense. He's the king, but he's not on the throne. But in Psalm 2-7, in a sense, God declares him publicly to be his king. And that's what you have here. God declaring Jesus to be his king. He will not ascend to that throne until he dies and he's resurrected. And at that point, he will say, all authority has been given to me. In heaven alone, in heaven and on earth. He sins, he sits at God's right hand, and he is Lord and King of all, whether anybody recognizes it or not. And one day every knee will bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, for the glory of God the Father. Next week we'll pick up at the temptation of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for a passage that's so important to us. Like Matthew's readers, help us to realize that you're a king of all, Gentiles and Jews. We are one in Christ. Help us to, to live like subjects of the king. Help us not to be ashamed. Help us, Lord, to fulfill our roles now in the kingdom. Because now we too have been anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit has descended upon us, alighted upon us. And now we are a kingdom of priests. And we have a role to fulfill. So Lord, help us to discover that role, each one individually, and do it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.